What motivates our practice? Most often, most people come to practice with some sense of wanting relief, wanting help, wanting to heal, wanting to find something, wanting relief from suffering. And we often find it if we stay. But we also discover in the process of practicing this doing nothing that Robert likes to talk about, we discover something else. We discover that we love the truth. I used to have the attitude that um, I could see the usefulness of practice for the relief of suffering. So I thought, oh, this is great. I'll be done with this very shortly, and then I'll be on my way. (laughs) But something happened to me, and I fell in love with the Dharma. I fell in love with this understanding. I fell in love with hearing the Dharma, with knowing the Dharma, with tasting the potential of awakening, it will grab you at some point. You are looking, actually, at four people up here who all love the Dharma. Is this true? Am I telling a lie? (laughs) And it's a wonderful love because it doesn't disappoint in the same ways that other loves have. (laughs) Truly, truly. However, it may not be so apparent in every moment. It may not be so apparent immediately. There's a cartoon I'd like to share with you of a um, wandering sadhu in a robe, barefoot, long beard, holding a staff, He's come to the end of the path, and one he's, there's a sign in front with an arrow pointing this way saying, the meaning of life. There's an arrow pointing the other way that says, cheese and crackers. <laughs> he's wondering which way to go. <laughs> We've all probably had that moment of being hot on the trail of enlightenment, and then the lunch bell rings. (laughs) Which do we choose? Over time, we come to love and cherish this teaching, this sense of contacting something in ourself that is very deep and profound. One of my teachers says he practices not to get rid of anything, but because he loves Buddha nature. He loves the deepest truth of his being, which is the same as the deepest truth of your being. The great philosopher Nagarjuna said, covered by the web of disturbing emotions, one is a sentient being. Freed from disturbing emotions, one is called a Buddha. 
What happens over time is that we do free ourselves from the disturbances of our struggles and that we come to love this Buddha within more than all the drama of our personality. Rumi is a great um, way shower of this love that overcomes the seeker. He says, why settle for a cup of water when you are the river? You are the wetness in water. Slide into the unknown. The beloved that knows you is waiting. How does this happen? How does this awakening to this deeper knowing happen? We sit down with our wants, with our must-haves, with our demands, with our beliefs, with our aggravation, with our irritation, with our, you know, the whole catastrophe. And somehow we begin to move from that to befriending all of this experience, and even beginning to appreciate the full range of what we are seeing and experiencing in practice. The 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows that make up a human life, they all come to visit us as we practice. And this is what we came here to do. We may have thought that we were going to go to Spirit Rock to get, you know, a little bit of a spiritual um, boost. But actually, we are not, it's putting the cart before the horse, we're not actually humans trying to have a spiritual experience, but we are spiritual beings having a human experience. Because of that, we are asked to open to all of what it means to be a human being. There is a poet whose name I do probably do not pronounce correctly, but it's Sisla Milos. He wrote this. He said, the purpose of poetry is to remind us how difficult it is to remain just one person. For our house is open, there are no keys in the doors, and invisible guests come in and out at will. I think we could also say the purpose of spiritual practice is to remind us how difficult it is to remain just one person. For our house is open, there are no keys in the doors, and invisible guests come in and out at will. This is how we liberate our true potential, by allowing the fullness of human experience to be known, by meeting it directly, moment to moment, as it appears in our mind, in our body. What is the nature of our experience as we sit? What have you seen this week? Everything's changing. When we want it to be different than it is, we suffer. 
And ultimately, it's not who we are. This is true with every moment of experience. This is true with everything that arises. With fear, with anger, with grief, with boredom, with happiness, with delight, with calm. They're always changing. When we want it to be different than it is, we suffer. And ultimately, none of this is who we are. And so we sit and we see this play of experience. And we also have the opportunity to notice how each state, each state of fear, of jealousy, of longing, of shame, of boredom, whatever it is, each state brings with it a particular set of experiences in the mind and in the body. Our task is to open ourselves with curiosity, with full attention, to see how each of these states appears. In this way, we become intimate with all that arises. Once we know the nature of fear in ourselves, we know the nature of fear. We understand it as a universal experience that all humans are subject to. In this way of exploring, curiosity really helps to ask ourselves as if we were an anthropologist investigating our own interior landscape, what is it like right now to be filled with rage? What is it like right now to be jealous? What is it like right now to be judging myself so harshly? We can do this. We can look within and see. What is it like in the body right now? What is it like in the heart, in the mind? There's a monk who comes here to teach, Achan Sumedho. Some of you may have met him. Wonderful, wonderful man. And he often advises that a way to practice is by saying to yourself, all right, fear is here. Fear is like this. Struggle is like this. Loneliness is like this. Just like this. This is the way it is right now. Then our actual lived experience informs us. It's not theoretical anymore. We don't have to figure it out. We're seeing it directly. And our life speaks to us when we listen with this kind of openness and curiosity and full attention. The poet Basho said, learn about the pine from the pine. Learn about the bamboo from the bamboo. In the same way, we can learn about fear from fear. Learn about the breath from the breath. Learn about calm from calm. And so on. 
So this is all a bit of a prelude to what I want to get to tonight, which is that when I look back over my own practice over some more than 25 years now, impossible to believe, I see that there have been many different phases of practice. There have been times of letting go and grieving, times of great happiness, joy, peace, love, times of feeling absolutely stuck, like nothing was happening, and times of, you know, kind of dramatic openings when I felt like, wow, this must be it. It, capital I-T. But all of these came and went and some more than once. And what this perspective gives me is that none of these seasons was it. They were all and continue to be a necessary part of opening the heart, but none of them was it. So tonight I'd like to uh, look at what I call the seasons of the heart using the four seasons of autumn, winter, spring, and summer, as a kind of template for looking at different phases of practice. Each of these seasons connects us with a certain set of experiences and challenges which all humans face at one time or another. The seasons of practice and of life itself expose us to all sides of the human experience. Every season has its gifts and its challenges. And if we continue on this path, we will meet them all. The philosopher George Santayana said, To be interested in the changing seasons is a happier state of mind than to be hopelessly in love with spring. That really sums it up. Can we cultivate that openness and interest in all the changing seasons? I'd like to begin with autumn. Autumn is usually when people enter practice. Not always, but often. It's when the ground shifts or gives way or things fall apart or the unexpected occurs when our beliefs are challenged, things don't work out when, as we thought they would, impermanence or the truth of suffering begins to wreak havoc in our lives, shakes the ground under which we thought we were so firmly established, and we find ourselves frightened, perhaps confused. This is often the time when people are quite open hearing about the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering and the causes of suffering and the possibility of the end of suffering. Because it is often this confrontation with suffering which brings people to come on retreat, to explore more deeply. So in autumn, these truths begin to show themselves, become more apparent in our lives the truth of ceaseless change. We see that nothing stands still, that our lives will always be changing, that people will continue coming and going, 
loving and leaving, dying, being born, always surprising us. There will always be a new challenge or problem, as well as new opportunities or unexpected gifts. Having a spiritual discipline is not going to make the world stand still, nor is it a way to avoid our suffering. Instead, it asks us to actually become more intimate with the truth of the way things are. When I was 16, I was initiated rather abruptly into the truth of change. It changed my life forever. That was the year my father died, quite unexpectedly. And for a 16-year-old, it was, it shook the ground under me. And I remember how odd it felt to me. He died in March, and it felt so odd. We were back east, outside of New York City. And what I remember was that I couldn't um, come to terms with the fact that on the one hand my father died, and on the other hand spring was coming. The lilacs were blooming, and the forsythia was coming into bloom. It just seemed, how could this be? was sort of an awakening into the reality of this world. So in autumn there is this deepening recognition of the truth of changing conditions. We, we begin to come out of denial about the way things really are. We learn to be more honest with ourselves. Honesty is a great aid in this practice. So a story. A woman had a seven-year-old son who said to his mom one day, he said, Mom, pretend that you are surrounded by a thousand hungry tigers. What would you do? His mom, trying to cooperate with his in curious, playful mind, you know, tried to think of something, but she really couldn't come up with anything. She said, gee, honey, I don't know, what would you do? He said, I'd stop pretending. (laughs) A lot of practices like that. How many... Tales have you spun while sitting here, pretending one thing or another. In the autumn of our practice, we stop pretending that things are other than they are. We learn to be truthful. We learn to be truthful about our feelings. We learn to be truthful about the fact that change is happening. All of these things. So in in some ways in autumn we are being asked to let go of our misperception of how we thought things were. We are also in autumn aware of endings, of losing, of the ungraspability of our moment-to-moment experience. Again, a loss of innocence about the way things are. 
Autumn is a very necessary season in our practice and one which we will revisit many, many times. There is always more to awaken to and it takes a while to trust that the process of letting go is a solution to our suffering. Now on the other hand, as I said, every season offers challenges and also gifts. And one of Autumn's gifts is is something about learning to forgive. Learning to forgive ourselves and to be kinder to ourselves and to others. Because everybody has to come to terms with living in this world of ceaseless change. Naomi Shihab Nye wrote a beautiful poem called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. Then we move to winter. In wintertime, there is a sense of nothing happening. We don't know we are in the dark. We may feel it at impasse. Many of you, I imagine, have had the experience of deep winter. I know I have back in New England, when there's that sense of everything being absolutely stripped and still. The woods are a black and white portrait, no color, no life, nothing moving, nothing stirring. And there's just this stillness in the sense of you just cannot imagine anything ever growing there again. In the same way in ourselves, There is that sense of nothing moving, of being stuck somehow in the darkness. It's not clear how or when the hidden life in us 
will emerge. And this season, because it is so filled with not knowing and no movement, it may be the most difficult for many of us. This is where the truth of change does not seem very apparent. Will I be stuck here forever, is the fearful wondering. So at such times, and this is why I really love this practice, because it talks about things like patience. We're not a very patient culture. I'm speaking of the American culture. We, we don't know very much about that, and we don't appreciate what patience brings. But what is needed most when we are feeling in the deepest winter of ourselves is this quality of patience and resoluteness. Suzuki Roshi called patience constancy, the unchanging ability to accept things as they are and to do this for a long time. I think of it as the ability to just keep showing up for how it is, moment to moment. Another Sumedho story about patience, the same monk, this was during his time in, in, as a monk when he was training with Achan Cha in Thailand, um, and he talks about patience. In Thailand, in the forest monasteries of the Northeast, you have a chance to become very patient because their life is much less efficient and you have to endure. You have to endure through all kinds of unpleasant physical experiences such as malaria and the hot season. The hot season in the Northeast is one of the dreariest things I've ever experienced in my life. You wake up in the morning and think, not another day. Everything seems so dreary. You think, another hot day, an endless day of heat and mosquitoes and sweat. One day after another. And then, finally, one reminds oneself, what a wonderful opportunity for developing patience. There you are in Thailand, receiving letters from impatient Americans who have gone around the world visiting all the exciting teachers. And you think to yourself, what am I doing here, sweating through my robes, being bitten by mosquitoes? And then you think, oh, I'm developing patience. If I just learn to be patient in this lifetime, I've not wasted it. Just to be a little more patient, it's good enough. I won't go to California and get involved in all those fascinating encounter groups. I'll just sit here and learn to be patient with a mosquito biting my arm. Because I always wanted to have an interesting personality, I trained myself in that direction and acquired all kinds of useless information and silly ideas so I could be a charming, entertaining person. But it doesn't really count. It's useless in a monastery in Northeast Thailand. (laughs) That mental habit just goes around in your mind when you're alone with nobody to charm and nothing's fascinating anybody. Instead of becoming fascinating and charming, I started looking at the water buffaloes. 
and wondering what went on in their minds. <laughs> a Thai water buffalo is one of the most stupid-looking creatures in the whole world, a big clumsy thing and has the dullest-looking face. So I'd sit there and create in my mind an image of a water buffalo becoming more stupid, more dull, more patient, and less of a fascinating and clever, interesting personality. There's always some place, somewhere that's better. But patience means that you endure through the way things are right now. We have the hope that eventually enlightenment will make us a more interesting, with it person than we are now. But Buddha wisdom is actually a very humbling wisdom. And it takes a great deal of patience to be wise like Buddha. Buddha wisdom wisdom isn't a particularly fascinating kind of wisdom. It's not like being a nuclear physicist or a psychiatrist or something. Buddha wisdom is very humbling. Why? Because it knows that whatever arises passes away and is not self. So it knows that whatever condition of the body and mind arises, it is conditioned, and whatever arises passes away. So in winter, we need to learn to be okay with not knowing, with being a little lost. Something is happening, but it's not obvious. And we also learn, perhaps, or even hearing that it's possible can sometimes help, that sometimes the moment of deepest despair is the turning point. We never really know what's coming next. We can go from despair to illumination in a moment. Eventually, this winter will give way to spring. A poem by Octavio Paz called After After chopping off all the arms that reached out to me, after boarding up all the windows and doors, after filling all the pits with poisoned water, after building my house on a rock of no, inaccessible to flattery and fear, after cutting out my tongue and eating it, after hurling handfuls of silence and monosyllables of scorn at my loves, after forgetting my name and the name of my birthplace and the name of my race, after judging and sentencing myself to perpetual waiting and perpetual loneliness, I heard, I heard against the stones of my dungeon the humid, tender, insistent onset of spring. Spring cannot be denied. It will come in its own time, in its own way. So spring arrives and we feel in our practice a stirring, a fresh inspiration, a renewed faith. We sense new life. 
perhaps new direction. It's like coming to life. A new sense of possibility returns. Our faith is restored. Whereas in the darkness and stillness of winter, we may have felt isolated and separate, in the spring we begin to sense our connection with life again. And we are filled with gratitude that life has not forgotten us. Suddenly or gradually, we are once again tasting joy and lightness of heart. We experience our heart opening once again to love and to connection. The danger here, of course, is in thinking in terms of practice, well, this is it. This is what I've been waiting for. I've arrived. I've made it. Because the experience of the qualities of spring is so pleasurable, it is easy to be seduced. It's okay to be enjoy and celebrate, but just not to try to hold on. All of these, of course, have no time attached, no particular time attached to them, so that we might go through all these seasons in one day or in one hour, or it may take weeks or months, but this cycling will occur. This energy and faith of spring, the sense of renewed possibility, wants to manifest. And so summer tends to be a time of outward manifestation, giving form to our inspiration, wanting to find a path which expresses our deepest intention, perhaps a way to serve or to find creative expression for our understanding. Summer is the time of the fruition of all that has gone before. And it doesn't need to look any particular way. It may mean becoming a monastic or a hermit or going on a long retreat. It may mean parenting children. It may mean being an artist or a body worker or a software engineer. Whatever form our manifestation takes, It is permeated with this sense of inspiration and generosity and wanting to serve. We discover that this giving and receiving are one and the same. So these are the four seasons of practice. The letting go and truthfulness and forgiveness of autumn. The patience and resoluteness and not knowing of winter the love and connection of spring, and the outward manifestation of summer. Over time, as we move through these different seasons over and over, we see each time we cycle through, we see more and more deeply how none of it is self. Not me, not mine. These seasons have a very impersonal or universal quality, and they train us. They teach us what it means to open to the full range of human experience. And in that, we find a tremendous sense of intimacy with all of life. They also teach us how to collaborate 
with time. That's a huge learning in this practice. This is not a path of instant awakening, instant enlightenment. It's not an enlightenment intensive, but rather a a process of learning to value and cherish and respect each season and to respect the timing of our own unfolding. We stop trying to force growth before its time or to deny the fruition of our understanding. We live in time and we learn to collaborate with it, to live within its laws, to notice that we can't speed it up, we can't slow it down. When we are in winter, we don't wish to be in spring. We see that there is a value in being just where we are. So we learn over time to allow the cycle with less resistance, less preference, more trust in what is being learned. Trust in letting go, trust in patience, trust in the unknown, trust in our ability to manifest in the world through the choices we make, the direction we move in, in our relationships with our family and our community. I like the analogy of seasons of practice because it takes us away from the idea that this practice is some kind of linear, progressive, sequential um, path, like an escalator. We get on and get off at the top. It's not like that at all. It's much more a cycle or a spiral. We pass through these different seasons over and over again. And what changes where progress is found is in our ability not to become identified with any particular experience or any particular season. These seasons stretch us way beyond our limited notions of self, and that is their value. I think that's it. I thought I had something else to read, but I don't. I hope this helps you as you leave here and go back into your life. This sort of sense of the trajectory or the bigger terrain of what we are doing here. Anyway, thank you very much for your attention. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 27, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.